production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Lewis Chaitin, a partner at Jones Day and a member of the City Club's Board of Directors. It is my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, my former boss, the Honorable Jeffrey S. Sutton. Judge Sutton serves on the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. He was previously one of the elite Supreme Court litigators of his generation, arguing many cases as Ohio's state solicitor and later as a partner at Jones Day. Before that, he clerked for two U.S. Supreme Court justices, Justice Powell and Justice Scalia. As a judge, he has sent many of his own clerks on to clerk at the Supreme Court, placing them with 11 different justices. The judiciary's respect for today's speaker knows no ideological bounds. In Judge Sutton's 15 years as a judge, he has established a reputation as a jurist of unsurpassed in intellect and integrity. His judicial philosophy might be summed up as one of judicial humility. It is a philosophy that probably stings from time to time, but as Judge Sutton has written, no judicial philosophy is worth its salt if it does not occasionally force the judge to rule against the cause he prefer would prefer to side with. Perhaps that humility is what led Judge Sutton to today's topic and the subject of his book, 51 Imperfect Solutions, States and the Making of American Constitutional Law. For many, constitutional law means one court, the United States Supreme Court, and one court system, the federal court system. Lawyers and litigants reflex reflexively assume that the US Supreme Court has all the answers. The role of state courts and state constitutional law in protecting individual liberties has been embarrassingly underappreciated. According to one poll, more than half of Americans did not even know their state, con state had a constitution. I'm a lawyer and I confess only recently did I read Ohio's constitution for the first time. Um, I, won't tell you, I won't tell you how recent, all of it, it's very long by the way. Um, I won't tell you how recently, um, but it, it was last night. Um, few, few, uh, few of the nation's 200 accredited law schools even offer a course in state constitutional law and a substantial percentage of those courses are taught by Judge Sutton. All probably use his casebook. Judge Sutton would like to correct this imbalance. His latest book tells four stories about four areas of constitutional law, equal protection, criminal procedures, privacy, and free speech, free exercise of religion. As Judge Sutton engaged, engagingly explains, traditional accounts of these constitutional issues ignore half the story, the important and positive role that state courts have played in the law's development. Judge Sutton's book is nothing if not timely. Americans are deeply divided over the proper role of the US Supreme Court in our constitutional democracy. Today we will hear a federal judge argue that a renewed focus on state constitutional law might be a solution for some of what divides us. It is an overtly nonpartisan thesis that necessarily benefits neither conservative nor liberal. 
Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming to the stage the Honorable Jeffrey S. Sutton. Thank you, Lewis, for that kind introduction. Thank you to the City Club for inviting me. This is such a wonderful institution, and I'm so proud and honored to be a part of it. Um, so let me tell you about my first effort to get someone to read this book. By the way, you can judge a book by its cover. Isn't that really <laughs> lovely? Um, my first effort to get somebody to read this book was actually a situation where it was free, uh, and that was trying to get my wife to read it. Uh, and uh, the reason I wanted my wife to read it was she's a seventh grade English teacher, and I thought, one, it'd be interesting to see what she thinks of it, but two, she might catch all the grammatical mistakes. And uh, so she's, you know, it's a couple weeks before we've got to send it to the publisher, and she says, okay, fine, I'll do it. Um, a day or two later, she's about a chapter and a half in, and she says, Jeff, I don't love you that much. Uh, <laughs> so um, then it gets a couple days before it has to go to the publisher, and she realizes, oh, wait a second, I've got something on the line here as well. What if the book comes out and it has a lot of grammatical mistakes? The world's, world's going to know I married a dunce. Uh, so she actually did read it. So my first effort to get somebody to read the book involuntarily worked, and I'm hoping that I'll have some success today. Um, but I get the idea that state constitutions are not the first thing most people think about when they're thinking about books to read. And that, that's illustrated by a story coming out of church a couple months ago, and a fellow, I think with some connections, uh, to Cleveland, Dr. Richard Briggs, a wonderful citizen of Ohio, um, stops me and said, uh, Jeff, Jeff, I hear you've written this, this book. That's so exciting. Uh, is it an autobiography? And I said, well, no, not exactly. Uh, is it a mystery? I love mysteries. Uh, and I said, no, I don't, really don't think you can call it a mystery. Well, Jeff, what's it about exactly? And I said, with too much enthusiasm, state constitutions. <laughs> and Dick, who's very polite, uh, kind of long, awkward silence, um, finally said, are you sure it's not a mystery? Uh, <laughs> well, the reality is there is some autobiography and there is some mystery, and I'm going to try to do that as a way of trying to show you that there's something here we're thinking about and discussing. Um, my story is your story on the autobiography front, and that's because we were all educated the same way. Uh, one doesn't have to go to law school to have learned this conventional narrative about American individual rights. It's a narrative we have a lot of pride in, and I certainly don't want to diminish that, but it's, it's pretty consistent, and it goes something like this, that the third branch, the judges, are life tenure at the federal level, and because they're life tenure throughout American history, uh, they've done some very counter-majoritarian rights-protective things, and it's been a very important institution when it comes to rights protection in this country, and it's something we're very proud of. And probably the, the capstone of that story is Jim Crow, and the discrimination in Jim Crow, it's, it's Southern, but it's really throughout the country. It finally leads to Brown versus Board of Education, and that's perceived as this great 9-0 U.S. Supreme Court decision that happily brings to the end this unfortunate chapter in American history. We learned that from at least seventh grade civics on. It's repeated in college. It's repeated in law school. And there's nothing wrong with the story because the story turns out to be true. Um, the problem with the story, and by focusing on that story exclusively, is we miss out on the point that there have been times in American history where it's actually been the state courts, the state court judges, and state constitutions that have saved the day. In fact, there have been several times in American history where the goat, the villain in the story, 
has been the US Supreme Court. So that's one part, one point here is to tell all of the relevant stories when it comes to constitutional law in this country. And it's quite misleading and dangerous to think exclusively of one institution, the US Supreme Court, as our rights protector. If you rely exclusively on one branch of government to protect your rights, you will eventually be disappointed. That's happened in American history in the past. It will happen in the future. So my whole point is we want to take care of both sides of the story, state courts, federal courts, pay attention to state constitutions, US constitutions, because both can protect our rights. The second autobiographical reason for going down this road is the oddity that I'm a federal judge. As a federal judge, I never get this issue. I've had it once in 16 years. We never get state constitutional law issues. Um, so you might say, why would a federal judge care about this? As you're going to see, cares about it a lot. And the one reason I really have come to care more and more about this during my tenure as a federal judge is because I'm quite anxious, indeed arguably terrified, about the path the federal courts are on and most conspicuously the path the US Supreme Court is on. I went, my first year of law school was 1987. And from 1987 forward, you really have seen, in my view, rights escalation at the US Supreme Court. A majority of the US Supreme Court identifies, we'll call it a blue right. And before long, the other side responds, well, if you can't beat them, join them, and a red right. And you have a rights escalation over time with the US Supreme Court identifying more constitutional rights in the Constitution. And what that comes down to is an institution over time that is exercising more and more power over our lives. Now, there's some good of, to that, because quite often these decisions have been very good decisions. But over time, what we've seen with the rights escalation is more and more resentment when we're not on the winning side of those winner-take-all fights. And that's, in particular, what I've seen over the last 10 years. Now, as a federal judge, you might think, this is good for me. If the federal courts are more and more involved in running our lives, that means they have more power. Make the analogy to an investment banker. I mean, if you have an investment portfolio, you pick stocks for people, you'd rather have more money rather than less. If you work for government, presumably you'd rather have more power rather than less. So in some ways, what's happened to the federal courts over the last 30 years has been something I should embrace, I should enjoy. I have a job where I get to exercise the very power we're talking about. There's just one small problem with the path we're on. I'll call it path A. The problem with path A is the American people may be foolish in the short term, but the American people are not foolish in the long term. Having witnessed how much power this institution is exercising, no surprise, they care deeply who the nine members of this court are. Now, unless you've been hiding under a rock for the last decade or so, you might have noticed that our confirmation fights have gotten more and more intense. It doesn't matter which president is doing the nominating, which president, which parties in control of the Senate. Both sides of the equation care deeply who is on the court. And the concern I have, and the reason I worry that this will all end in tears, is that the more political these confirmation fights get, um, the more it is going to look like to the average American, to say nothing of the average American lawyer, that these judges in these black robes are really politicians in robes and ought to wear red robes or blue robes signifying their persuasion. We came very close in our last confirmation hearing to having something that has never happened before in American history, 
where the confirmation vote was purely partisan, where all of the members of the party of the president supported the nominee and all of the members of the opposite party opposed the nominee. There were just two votes that switched. So we're getting very close to purely partisan votes for Supreme Court justices. That's not good. That's not going to be good for the credibility of the court, the health of the court, and our confidence in the court. So the path A is the path we're on. My job and my goal is how do you get off of path A? But let me explain why this is very difficult. The incentives for path A are very high. If you're an interest group, of course you want a winner-take-all victory at the US Supreme Court. There is nothing better in American government than a constitutional ruling in favor of your interest issue. Why? You've not only got your position nationalized, winner-take-all, but you have sidelined the opponent because it's a constitutional ruling. That means democracy can't work with respect to that issue. So the, the incentives all continue to push towards winner-take-all Supreme Court fights, winner-take-all Supreme Court rulings, and of course the same dynamic is going on in Congress. So how do you get off of path A and is there a path B? Well, the, the way to get off of path A is some kind of detente, obviously, where both sides recognize that perhaps more of our critical issues in American government should be resolved at the local level through democracy. Um, that's, the detentes are very difficult to make happen. Uh, the second reason a detente is going to be very difficult in this country is because we Americans love judicially enforceable rights. I don't think there has been a country in world history that embraces judicially enforceable rights more than the United States. So we love judicially enforceable rights, and I think it's going to be very difficult to get us off that path. Now, to be clear about this, I think judicially enforceable rights are quite overrated. Um, and I'll illustrate it with this comparison. If I could only have Brown versus Board of Education, I've already shown you I like that decision, or the 1964 Civil Rights Act, I can only have one, I can't have both. If I could only have one in American history, that is a no-brainer for me. I would always take the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Why? What do we want in this country? What's the goal? The goal is to have a culture, a political culture, a legal culture, where the majority looks after the rights of the minority. The culture should not be five members of a nine-member life-tenured court looking after this interest or that interest. So clearly, the path we're on is not one I like. I think we, our, our view of judicially enforceable rights is a bit overrated. But I may be an optimist. I'm not a fool. And I realize that's going to be a very hard thing to convince Americans in um, America circa 2018. So if we're going to embrace judicially enforceable rights, the path B that would work, in my view, is to have the US Supreme Court either innovating them less often or perhaps being a little more patient before they innovating them, and in the interim, using the state courts and their state constitutions to enforce these rights. So you still have a place, a way to go to court. It just means that when you win at court, you win for 13 million people in the Ohio Supreme Court as opposed to 325 million people at the US Supreme Court. So here's the mystery part of my talk. I've explained autobiographically why I care about this, why it's so important. There's a lot of mystery here. Why do we not pay attention to these state constitutions and state courts? Now, the irony is unbelievable. Every individual right that you prize, every individual right that is the focus of seventh grade civics, 
is an individual right that did not originate in the U.S. Constitution. The greatest era of rights innovation, the greatest era of Constitution authoring was between 1776 and before the fabled summer of 1787 in Philadelphia. That's because whatever your preferred right is, free speech, free exercise of religion, equal protection, due process, the or origins of those rights were the state constitutions during that chapter of American history. And yet we've forgotten they exist there, we've forgotten there are state courts that can enforce them, and we've forgotten the potential role they might play in helping us get out of this problem. The second part of this mystery is you think Mar Americans could not do math. We, you, every day in this country, you have individuals who need rights protection, and yet their lawyers are taking just one shot rather than two at protecting their clients' interests. I've just explained to you that every right we care about in the federal constitution exists in the state constitution. So free speech, free exercise, they're in all 50 state constitutions, and they're in the 51st constitution, the US constitution. That means if you've got a problem with a state or local government, you have two chances rather than one to knock out that law, stop that criminal prosecution. And yet most lawyers, I think it's an education deficit, take just one of these shots. Let me illustrate just how foolish this is. Let's take a, a basketball team, um, the Cavs. Let's, <laughs> let's take an NBA championship against, say, the Warriors a few years ago. And let's imagine a game seven where LeBron drives down the lane, the, uh, the score is tied, there's a couple seconds on the clock, and of course, what's his name, Draymond Green fouls him egregiously as he's about to take a shot. Time runs out, the ball does not go in. This is not a bad position for a Cleveland Cavs fan, right? No time left on the clock, it's a two-shot foul, he has two chances to bring home the, the championship. What would you think if LeBron James had taken just one of those free throws. And keep in mind, he's not actually a good free throw shooter towards the end of the game. I mean, he really needed the second shot. And yet, I mean, this really makes you wonder, are American basketball players truly smarter than American lawyers? Unequivocally, yes. If you want to be smart, learn basketball, not American law. So the second part of this mystery is how odd it is that we're not taking two shots rather than one to um, solve our problems when it comes to overreaching government laws, overreaching government criminal prosecutions. The third point is that the second shot, the state constitutional shot, is often the better shot. Go back to basketball. It's as if the rim, rim is bigger and the ball is smaller. It's actually easier to often make this second shot. Why is that? Now here's my, I, I, this is probably a first in City Club history. Um, you're actually going to get an assignment today. Uh, Lewis did his ahead of time. He's always been a good student. Um, I'm not going to ask you to read the whole Ohio Constitution. I think it's 59,000 words, Steve, right? 59,000 words. That's a big project. Um, you'll need more no-dos than you will for this book uh, to get through it. Um, but what I will ask you to do is just go to Article 1. Uh, in, in Ohio, we privilege rights. You open the Ohio Constitution, the first thing you see is rights guarantees. That comes later in the U.S. Constitution with the Bill of Rights, primarily. Uh, here it's first. Just spend 15 minutes with Article I and the Bill of Rights. You will be astonished how often, number one, the language is different from the federal guarantees, but most importantly, how often the language is more specific. 
So quite, I'll give you an illustration of that. The free exercise of religion clause in Ohio refers to a right to conscience. That's above and beyond the free exercise of religion. There is a lot to work with when it comes to that language. So it's an easier claim to win. A second reason why you might win a case in the Ohio Supreme Court that you couldn't win or didn't win in the US Supreme Court is history. Sometimes the history behind these guarantees is a history that Ohio, an Ohio Supreme Court or a state Supreme Court can account for and perhaps customize the interpretation to take account of something unique in that particular state. So I'll go outside Ohio, but stick with free exercise. Think of a case about discrimination against religious minorities that arises in Utah, Maryland, Rhode Island, and Pennsylvania. Those are all states founded by religious dissenters. Does it not make some sense that the state courts in those states, when construing their free exercise guarantees, are going to care a little bit more about that history than other states? And of course, the US Supreme Court can't customize its interpretation of the free exercise clause to something that happened in Rhode Island. They have to pay attention to the whole country, which means they often discount, under-enforce the right. The third reason why the state court might do something the US Supreme Court is not, it comes down to um, something I can make very complicated or very easy. I'm going to try very easy. There are basically just two types of judges out there. There's a lot of different phrases given, but they're basically type one is the type of judge that says, you know, we really got to pay attention to the language, the precedent, and we really got to be careful before we go beyond language precedent. Type two says we have a little more flexibility. Yes, we pay attention to language and history, but we have some flexibility to perhaps broaden our interpretations and broaden the guarantee. That's all there is in the world of judging from my perspective state or federal court. Basically half of the constitutional rulings out there are one or the other. If you have a US Supreme Court decision that's a little more formal, and you have an Ohio Supreme Court that's a little less formal, they not only can disagree, they should disagree. Unless they're lying to us, if they believe in the different approach to interpretation, they should never buy that contrary approach. The last reason is probably the most powerful. The rights we care the most about are written in the most general language. Due process, free speech, equal protection, unreasonable search and seizures, cruel and unusual punishment. Those are not terms that readily lend themselves to one and only one interpretation. Sometimes there's a history behind those guarantees that will lock you into one interpretation in one fact pattern. But most often, they leave an awful lot of latitude for interpretation. How strange to think that a state court should frankly care at all what the US Supreme Court has done with something written at that level of generality, due process, free speech. Now what good can come out of this approach? Well, I've already told you I want to get us off path B and get us uh, off of path A and get us on path B. But here's some other virtues of what I'm advocating and what I hope you'll think seriously about. It's very hard in America this day and age to get agreement on something uh, a, that has a pol political resonance to it. But I'm pretty confident I could get all 325 million Americans to agree with this. That the great virtue of federalism was something that Lewis, Justice Louis Brandeis identified you know, almost 100 years ago. And his insight was that you can, a, a brave state 
can be a laboratory of experimentation in dealing with this or that new policy problem. Now what Brandeis was referring to, a truly great American, was using state legislatures, elected state officials, as the labs and letting them innovate some clever policy. If it works, another state can adopt it. If a bunch of states adopt it, eventually you can nationalize it. No one disagrees with that insight of federalism. Everyone thinks that is a virtue of federalism and it's something we should be proud about as Americans. All I'm saying is we should take that exact insight and apply it to state courts and have our state courts act as laboratories of constitutional experimentation with these highly generalized guarantees. Instead of a world in which the US Supreme Court, as if on Mount Olympus, announces these verdicts which we all follow, why not have a world where from the bottom up we have state courts taking seriously interpretation of these guarantees and then eventually over time the US Supreme Court can decide maybe it's appropriate to nationalize this one insight. It really does make sense to have a uniform requirement on this point. Or from time to time say no, there are regional disparities here and we should respect and honor those regional disparities because after all it's pretty hard to say there's a perfect option here. So bringing the, the Brandeis Labs point to constitutional interpretation does not seem like a bad idea at a minimum to give the US Supreme Court a little more time before it nationalizes. And remember what time does. Time lowers the stakes at the US Supreme Court. You can never avoid the problem that fights at the US Supreme Court are winner take all. What you can do, however, is if you are a little more patient the stakes go down if, for example, the U.S. Supreme Court decides to nationalize a right after 30 or 40 states have already done the same thing. At that point, the only victims of that decision are 10, 15 states. There's going to be less resentment. There's going to be a little more credibility with the U.S. Supreme Court decision, and I hope a little less intensity when it comes to these fights about who fills these U.S. Supreme Court um, seats. A second point, I think another virtue of this, um, is it's neutral. It's very hard to find something in American government that's both good and really is neutral. And I can prove that taking state constitution seriously is quite neutral. So Justice Scalia, he's perceived, by the way, as a conservative. I think he spoke here in 2003, so he's a prior speaker. Uh, Justice Scalia is perceived as a conservative. I'm going to guess most people appreciate that. In his last majority opinion for the court, a case called Kansas versus Carr, he said everything I'm saying. He said the states are free to experiment with their own state constitutions and then pointed out they often have done so in the aftermath of U.S. Supreme Court decisions. So that's the conservative perspective echoing what I'm saying. Um, and, and Justice Scalia, you know, arguably the, the most consequential conservative justice over the last 70 years, if not, you know, most all, all time. You'd have to put on the list of the most influential liberal Supreme Court justices, William Brennan, and certainly the most influential during that period, he wrote an article in 1977 saying everything I'm saying and agreeing with Justice Scalia. When Justice Brennan and Justice Scalia agree about something, that is the definition of truth. That's truth. I mean, you, 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 can, you can take it to the priest, the rabbi, and I think they'll agree. That's truth. Uh, we'll put it in our sacred document. So there's some, there's some benefit to that, and it seems to me it's worth saying. Now, I want to, in my last few minutes, mention one of the stories. I hadn't thought about this till my good friend Jack Newman uh, mentioned it. Um, so one of the stories originates here um, in, in, not Ohio, it's Cleveland. 
Uh, and that's the Map versus Ohio story. It's a criminal procedure story, and it's about the development of the exclusionary rule. And the, the way the exclusionary rule works, as I think most of you know, is that if the, uh, the police violate someone's constitutional rights, for example, by an improper seizure, uh, the fruits of that search, the evidence from that search, is suppressed. And the government, in other words, can't benefit from the wrong by using that evidence to convict somebody and put them in jail. That's the idea behind the exclusionary rule. Well, it's a really fascinating story. The development of the exclusionary rule starts uh, in the late 1800s. It spreads to the states. And finally, in 1961, in Map versus Ohio, they nationalized the exclusionary rule. So it takes about 75 years to do it, which is a pretty good story in terms of pacing. Um, and, and that chapter kind of illustrates some of the, some of the pros and cons of how that works. But the underlying search in Math versus Ohio, I mean, it might even be on Euclid Avenue, not right here, but I think it's not too far away, I involved Don King, the later boxing promoter. It was two betting, um, betting groups that were rivals, I think. I think this was a, a business competition problem. Um, so it, 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 a very serious business competition problem because it led to an attempted murder. Um, and the search is of a woman, Dolores Mapp, who's in the, I think, in the house where one of the, um, the other suspects is. Uh, the government comes in. These are police officers from Cleveland. Uh, they say they have a warrant. Um, she grabs it and puts it right here. I'm not going to describe that, but puts it right here. Um, and because she's suspicious about what it is, um, they uh, say, we have a right to do this. She says, get out of here. And then they try to get the warrant back, because they know it's just a blank piece of paper, um, and there really wasn't a warrant. And so what grows out of that case is the exclusionary rule. And it's, you know, it's a really quite shocking, frankly, um, investigation, search, and seizure. But there's two parts of the story that I'm actually not going to answer, but I'm going to um, put in front of you, because I know there is someone here that is going to track down and do something with what I'm about to tell you. Um, so the lawyer that argued Mapp versus Ohio for Ohio is the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office was a woman named Gertrude Bauer Mahon, M-A-H-O-N. So she had, um, so that's pretty unusual. In fact, I, to my knowledge, that is the first woman to argue a landmark case at the U.S. Supreme Court. I've read her brief, I've listened to her argument, she does a great job. Uh, I think eventually she married uh, the mayor, and I think is ultimately the county prosecutor. But the part of the story that uh, connected with me uh, a couple weeks ago was when I learned about another trailblazing woman from northeastern Ohio, a woman named Florence Allen. So the thing about Florence Allen that's fascinating is she becomes the first woman assistant prosecutor in the country in what office? The Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office. So there was something going on in Cleveland going at least back to 1919 where at a time where the women didn't yet have a constitutional right to vote, they were getting hired as lawyers, prosecutors, and getting serious responsibility. Florence Allen's responsibility went really well. She not only is the first as an assistant county prosecutor, she's the first elected official of any type in Ohio, one of the first state Supreme Court justices in the country, and the first federal court of appeals judge in the country, and she was chief judge of my court. Gertrude Mayen argues that case in 1961 Florence Allen retires from my court in 1959, and here's your assignment. I guess there were two assignments today. This one actually is going to come with a paper requirement. Uh, <laughs> I want a paper from somebody that proves what my instincts are, that Gertrude Mayen 
went, Gertrude Bauer at the time, went to the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office because she saw what Florence Allen had done in the same county prosecutor's office and that Florence Allen a bit helped her along the way. Now I've tried very hard to make that link. I've come up short, but you've seen that's because I'm not that smart. Somebody here is going to figure that out. It is a great story. It's a Cleveland-specific story. You could have a year of fora on this particular story. So um, I, I hope someone will look into it. But now I would love to get questions from people. You can challenge me. You can ask anything you want. I'm Stephanie Jansky, Director of Programming at the City Club, and today we are listening to a forum with the Honorable Jeffrey S. Sutton, author of 51 Imperfect Solutions, States, and the Making of American Constitutional Law. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our radio broadcast or live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will try and work it into the program. Holding the microphones today are content coordinator Bliss Davis and um, City Club intern Orimilo Orasanya. May we have the first question, please? Should I go? Yes, I'd like to say just a few words and I'd like you to respond. The courts in immigration policy. Ah, yeah. No, that's easy. Uh, I, I like it. Uh, the more general, the easier it is to pick what part of the generality you want to talk about. Uh, so um, well, this is actually a um, very helpful way to illustrate a point about my talk and, and something I hope you'll try to do. Um, uh, when you hear about big U.S. Supreme Court cases and big U.S. Supreme Court decisions, what I want you to do after today is ask yourself, is that the end of the story? Is this something that only the U.S. Supreme Court, only the national government has authority over, or is this something where the states have a role to play? More often than not, it's not the end of the road because the states do have a role to play. Now, the immigration question is actually an exception to that rule. You, in most, not all, not all, in fact, there's some litigation that proves this exception, but most immigration issues, because they are about protecting the national borders, not state borders, are really in Congress's purview when it comes to passing laws, the President's purview when it comes to enforcing those laws, and the federal court's purview when it comes to interpreting those laws. So immigration, and this is probably one of the reasons why in the last two years the stakes have been so much higher on that particular issue, because there isn't a lot of room for state innovation. Now having said that, um, this administration has generated some disputes with states. I mean, that's exactly what the sanctuary city dispute is all about, where you have situations where what exactly is the authority of local law enforcement when it comes to immigrants that the, the federal government thinks do not have a right to be here. And that's, that turns out to be a really fascinating dispute. Obviously, as a federal judge, I can't opine on it. I don't know that we have any cases in our circuit on it. But, but, this is, but, the, but the, the key point here, the key takeaway, Immigration is largely going to be something the federal judges, president, and Congress deal with, but there are some exceptions as the, um, the commandeering cases in the Sanctuary City case reveal. Uh, thank you, Your Honor. Um, I wanted to, to get your impression on what can be done to address, and I guess I'd call it the bias that's in the legal profession for federal court over state court, given that, I mean, it's something that we don't like to talk about. But there is an un unstated sort of view that 
the quality of justice is perhaps better in the federal court. Um, and I actually, my, my first year in the, of uh, civil procedure, your colleague uh, Karen Nelson Moore made a big a presentation about how do you, how and why you need to get your case in federal court. How how do you address that? Yeah, no, it's it's a serious problem. I'm I'm not sure what to say about it. Um, let me let me try to um, burst the bubble that explains the problem. Um, so probably the case in U.S. Supreme Court history that has given the states the worst name in state courts, perhaps the worst name, is Brown versus Board of Education. Let me tell you that story in full to try to illustrate why this is actually complicated and not something you can too quickly say the federal judges are better than state court judges. So first of all, Brown versus Board of Education is not one case, it's five cases ultimately. Four of those cases come from the state, uh, excuse me, four of those cases involve states. So four, so I think the states are Delaware, uh, Kansas, uh, maybe it's Virginia and South Carolina. I'm pretty close to right, maybe I've got the Carolinas mixed up. So you've got four state cases. Three of those cases come through the federal courts, courts like mine, and the fourth case comes through the Delaware Supreme Court. Guess what the verdict of history is on which set of courts got that right? Only one of the cases was affirmed, the Delaware Supreme Court. No one tells that story. No one tells the story that the the group that was affirmed in Brown versus Board of Education, and it was only that court, was the state court. The reverse courts were the federal courts. Here's another part of that story that most people don't know, the fifth case. The fifth case did not come from a state. The fifth case came from the District of Columbia. The District of Columbia is part of the national government. Congress is control of, of the District of Columbia. Why did that case arise there? Because before Brown versus Board of Education, the District of Columbia, the federal public schools in the District of Columbia were segregated. So it confirms, the, no one tells that part of the story. We just, we, we like the story of the feds are the heroes and the U.S. Supreme Court are the greatest heroes of all. You know, I love that story, I'm a federal judge, but <laughs> it's not always true. And the other way, there's a chapter in the book which I'm not gonna lay out, but it, it really shows an example that no one knows anything about. So one of the most misbegotten U.S. Supreme Court decisions of all time is Buck versus Bell. And it would be infamous Oliver Wendell Holmes line, three generations of imbeciles are enough. It's an 8-1 decision, it's not even close. They reject a claim by an individual who wanted to prohibit an involuntary sterilization. The part of that story that no one knows is that before 1927, five out of the six state courts that looked at this issue got it right by the verdict of history, quite often under state constitutions. So my answer to your question is this is a lot of work. Um, it's exactly why I've written the book. It's exactly why I'm wandering all over the country talking about this. And um, my, my last point is to ask yourself which set of judges is better? And I'm not so sure which is better. I, I really am not. Um, I. I um, Maybe more of the um, federal judges went to Harvard, Yale, Ivy League schools. Maybe more of the state judges went to Ohio State like I did. Um, now that I think about it, that's why, maybe why I like the state court judges so much. <laughs> um, but I don't think they're doing a worse job. I mean, I actually look, if the way I put it in the book is let's compare U.S. Supreme Court decisions and the text they're interpreting and how, what kind of correlation is there. Text on one side of the page, decision on the right side of the page. Is it close or is there no correlation? Now let's look at how the states are doing. I can just about guarantee you 
the correlation on the state side is a lot better than the federal side. So, I don't know. Yes? Well, oh, well I'm sorry. I have to pay attention to you. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Hello. Uh, my name is Sandy Shun, and I'm from Solon High School. Uh, thank you for coming today. Uh, my question is, is what, kind of what kinds of reforms do you suggest that uh, state governments or state courts can make to make their courtrooms more progressive, as you say, or to make the amendment process a little more difficult so that I know in the past that um, you've said that <clears throat> the amendment process for state consti constitutions can be uh, simpler than uh, it should be. So what kinds of suggestions do you have? What grade are you in? Uh, I'm a senior. Uh -huh. yeah. That's very good, very good question. Uh, come work for me in a few years. Uh, <laughs> so uh, let's start with the last point because the last point's really important. Um, the ease or difficulty of amending state and federal constitutions. So the federal constitution is essentially unamendable. You, you really can't amend, you have to have three quarters of the states ratify. That means anything remotely controversial cannot be amended. So that, that constitution errs on the side of being too difficult to amend. The state constitutions consistent, I think, with the questioner's view is that most of them are too easy to amend, and I would add the Ohio constitution to that mix. Uh, once you get it on the ballot, it takes about 51% vote. And I think that's one reason why the U.S. Constitution is roughly 7,500, uh, the U.S. Constitution is roughly 7,500 words, and the Ohio Constitution is 59,000 words. And when you start to read that Constitution as you get further into it, past the rights protections, it looks like a yard sale. A lot of things that people bought and are now trying to pawn off on somebody else, and no one should buy them. Uh, so I'm very much in favor. Um, there have been some efforts, including by Professor Steinglass, to think a little bit more about how we do this, maybe make it uh, relatively easy to correct legislation through referendum. I, I really like the idea of the people having a voice there. But I, I think if you make it a 51% vote for amending the Constitution, you really incentivize interest groups, money groups, to perhaps amend these constitutions more than they should be amended. But it's a very tricky issue. But I, I think there's a lot to it. Um, the other education point is um, it starts in seventh grade on. We just got to tell both stories. You've got to tell both stories. They're happy stories. And, and they're not surprising stories. Is it shocking that governments make mistakes from time to time? Of course it's not shocking. We should tell that part of the story, Dred Scott, Buck versus Bell with the US Supreme Court. And we should tell, we know when states have made mistakes, and we should tell the stories when the state courts got it right. And that can happen from seventh grade on, and most essentially, it should happen in law school as well. So where's, okay. Good afternoon, thank you, Your Honor. Um, my name is Victoria Wagner. I'm a naturalized US citizen who came to this country when I was 24. Uh, English is my third language, and I want to be honest that after the, your, your speech, I know it's wonderful, uh, but I could only understand 20% of it. Oh, that's uh, probably a little more than my wife's first reading, <laughs> yeah. Because of my language barrier and my lacking of knowledge of the US uh, legal system and uh, US history, um, but, uh, but, you know, with that being said, uh, I might not come up with the best question um, and uh, 
So, so what, are there any correlations between insurances and uh, constitution? I understand that uh, uh, George Washington wrote the first insurance. Uh, it was a fire insurance to, to uh, you know, make people to have uh, the option to have the coverage they can choose to buy that insurance. But um, I, over the years, I have met people who are tangled in domestic relations court for like 12 years, 15 years. Even after their divorces are finalized, one party can still file all kinds of motions every year, like post-decree motions, right. to bring the other party back to the DR court. And, and I call it tangled. And these people have to sell, the, sell their house houses uh, to pay like attorney fees, uh, ad, uh, uh, GAL fees and court fees and yeah, they, so I think here's, here's, they I have no coverage or uh, there's no insurance on, on uh, the market to buy. Yeah, uh, you know, no I think I get it. Well so the, the George Washington part of it, I'm less than 20% of understanding that. I mean I, that, that I don't know the history so I'm, I'm out there. But the one thing I do know and th this I, I quite understand your question and this is a real problem for all American courts, state and federal. Um, there is a market, there's a free market country, and there is a market for dispute resolution in this country. And in my view, the federal and state courts are losing that competition. And one of the big reasons they're losing that competition is stories like yours. It takes too long to get justice. It's too expensive, it takes too long, and we don't have enough settings in our court system where we customize the rule of law, the procedures to deal with the group of people that are dealing with this particular, I mean, one should not be having to talk about insurance with respect to being able to get due process in court. Those should not go together. That should not happen in this country. And I think it's one of the reasons the federal and state courts are not doing well and perhaps not that well uh, perceived. So that's, that's a group project. And I have to say federal and state could both do better on that. I think she's right behind you. Oh, here, okay. Thank you, Judge, for coming and talking this, to us here today. In November 2014, in De Boer v. Snyder, you wrote the majority opinion of the Sixth Circuit, holding that Ohio's ban on same-sex marriage did not violate the U.S. Constitution. In her dissent, Judge Daughtry wrote, instead of recognizing the plaintiffs as persons suffering actual harm as a result of being denied the right to marry, where they reside, or the right to have their valid marriages recognized here, my colleagues view the plaintiffs as social activists who somehow stumbled into federal court but they are not political zealots trying to push reform on their fellow citizens. They are committed same-sex couples, many of them heading up de facto families who want to achieve equal status. In Obergefell, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the ruling of your court and made same-sex marriage and legal, marriage equality legal throughout the nation. I wonder now, what are your thoughts on those cases? Uh, it's the reason I wrote the book. Uh, so the uh, same-sex marriage story is about a, as good a federalism story as there is. And it's really um, an appropriate story to remember for those who are not happy with the composition of the U.S. Supreme Court. So in 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court had an opportunity to create a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. There was not a single vote on the court for that idea in 1972. So what did that mean? After 1972, on the federal side, under the 14th Amendment, the U.S. Constitution, there was no possibility of getting relief if you were a gay couple and thought you had a right to marry. That only left one option, going to the states. And that's the story you're going to probably hear a lot in the next day, decade or two. And one of the reasons for the book is to remind people 
If you have a loss at the U.S. Supreme Court, you're allowed to go to the states to try to get relief. Now, how did that story unfold? Well, it's not exclusively a state constitutional story or a state court story, but it's very much that kind of story. The first movement is a decision in the 1990s in Hawaii. Then you have a 1998 decision in the Vermont Supreme Court. And then perhaps the most important ruling in this whole area is the Goodrich decision in 2003 written by Margaret Marshall for the Massachusetts highest court. After 2003, you start to get state legislation, state constitutional amendments, more state Supreme Court decisions like the Iowa decision. When it's finally time for Obergefell in 2015 in Justice Kennedy's opinion, what does he say? He says everything I'm saying. This is a dialogue that started in the courts, the state courts, under the state constitutions, and it's one that has continued to this court, and we are now going to rely on their insights in nationalizing this right. Now, we all know this is a controversial issue, but the one thing that is not controversial is that if you're going to nationalize rights, that is a very productive path for doing it. Let innovative states, brave states, try something new, and then if other states agree, they can try it, and then eventually the U.S. Supreme Court can nationalize the right if they think that's appropriate. Um, if I had, well, this goes back to the earlier question, if I had one slight criticism of that story, it's how Obergefell and the story of same-sex marriage will be taught over the next 30 years. The hero of that story is going to be Justice Kennedy and the U.S. Supreme Court for the Obergefell ruling. And I don't want to diminish what they did, or Justice Kennedy in particular, that's not my point. But if you're going to compare judges in bravery and courage, it wouldn't have been what happened in 2015 when a majority of Americans supported same-sex marriage. It would have been Margaret Marshall in 2003. Now that took courage, and yet Margaret Marshall, I fear, will be lost to history. I don't even think she'll be a footnote in history because of our, we just love the U.S. Supreme Court and federal judges. I'm not sure it's deserved, and perhaps my opinion in that case proves it shouldn't be deserved. So where's the next one? Hi, my name is Matt Wagner. I'm a 2L at Cleveland Marshall College of Law. So just in final season, taking a... What are you doing here? Do your parents know you're here? <laughs> taking, a, taking a short break. I needed a break. So I go to a conversation well, Actually, about this courts. is very useful. No, you're right. This is going to help you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you mentioned uh, Path A. One of the reasons that we should veer off of Path A is because as the Supreme Court weighs into more controversial issues, such as same-sex marriage or abortion rights or something else, that people are becoming disillusioned with the court. They're viewing it more as a partisan uh, you know, part of government and that you could have red robes and blue robes. My concern with state courts is where justice or judges and state ju judges are elected, where it's overtly partisan, where you have primaries, and if we put a lot of emphasis on the state courts, wouldn't that just eventually be the same, you know, concern about it being too partisan? And more specifically, it would be more partisan because they're elected. Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. So let me dignify the question by uh, letting everybody know that 90% of state court judges are elected. So that really is consistent with the point. Now, one has to be a little careful in what that means. So in Ohio, it's true, they go through primaries. Once they're on the general ballot, their party affiliation is not noted. Most of the state, or at least a, a high percentage of the state elections are retention elections. They're not partisan. There's actually not even opponents. So 
What's really going on with that 90% is the people do have a say in who these judges are as opposed to serving for life. So that's a contrast, and you're quite right. What do we do about it? Um, to be clear about my concern about the path A, it isn't about any one ruling or one, any one issue. That's, that, to me, is beside the point. Uh, to me, what's terrifying is we just had a presidential election two years ago that arguably turned on one vacancy in a nine-member court. That should make you think either the perception or the reality of the power the court is exercising has gotten out of whack. Now, perhaps it's a perception issue, and we just need to educate people as to what they're really doing and not doing. Now, back to your question of how can, if, if, if I am concerned about politicizing judges, and if I'm concerned that's happening on the federal side, how is that a solution? It's not a solution. I don't want to elect federal judges, but I think I've realized that the federal side of it has gotten pretty political. I mean, if we have a purely partisan vote to confirm someone, the point is it's the same. And that's what's sad. They're no, they're no longer different anymore. So the criticism you have of electing state court judges, you now have to apply to federal judges. That's, that's really the point. The, the last thing I would say, um, it's not just that federal judges have life tenure. Federal judges serve for a very long time. And you know, I'm one of them. I'm in my 16th year. I learned about state constitutions and state court when I was a young lawyer as the state solicitor general of Ohio. And as I tell my students in state con law class, I could teach a semester-long class based on all the cases I lost under the Ohio Constitution in the Ohio Supreme Court. I mean, I lost a lot of these cases. School funding, vouchers, tort reform, criminal procedure. That might lead you to think I don't like state courts or state constitutions. But what happened in Ohio? The composition of the court changed in about five years. What, what, it's, it's such a classic Ohio story. It didn't, go, it didn't go from sharp left to sharp right. It went from center left to center right. The, the new Ohio Supreme Court, the current Ohio Supreme Court, didn't overrule a single one of those rulings. They left them all in place. But they are innovating a little less than they were in the 1990s when I was an advocate. There's something to me about that story that's positive, right? Because we judges, this is not our constitution, it's not our law, it's the people's constitution, the people's law, and letting the people have a say in who these judges are from time to time can be quite healthy. So I actually would say what I witnessed at the Ohio side made me more confident that in other words, if you get even elected judges that are disconnected from what the people of that state want or think is appropriate for the role of the judge, they have an antidote. The federal level, the antidote is really not there because the tenure is, is so long. So it's, it's a really good question, and the answer is really complicated, um, as I think I've just proved. Um, <laughs> is that okay? Today at the City Club, we have been listening to a forum with the Honorable Jeffrey S. Sutton, author of 51 Imperfect Solutions, States, and the Making of American Constitutional Law. Today's forum is the annual Richard and Sally Hollington Endowed Forum, made possible by a generous endowment gift from Richard and Sally. We're delighted to have Dick and his son Peter with us today. Thank you for your continued support of City Club programming. Today's forum is also part of our Authors in Conversations series, supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We are grateful to all residents of Cuyahoga County for their support through that public grant. 
We welcome guests at tables hosted by Baker Hostetler and Friends of David Nash. And lastly, we welcome students from Hawkins School and Solon High School. Support for student participation in City Club forums comes from Key Bank and the William M. Weiss Foundation, with additional support from donors you'll find listed in today's program. We thank all of you for being here today. The sale of Judge Sutton's book, 51 Imperfect Solutions, States in the, American <laughs> States in the Making of American Constitutional Law, is provided by a cultural exchange. And that brings us to the end of today's forum and the final one of 2018. Thank you, Judge Sutton, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.